Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by Pastor Abe Lee. He is preaching from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. As Pastor Clint said, we're going to look at some of the challenges uh, we have to face in our faith. You know, as, and as we said, this new sermon series is called Difficulty in Christianity. Um, so pausing our Letters of John sermon series, spending some time on looking at these different topics. Each of them have this central theme that weaves them all together. And uh, he'll be considering, you know, difficulties about Christianity in the face of culture, um, difficulties of face, uh, faith in the face of uh, ex- financial things like, uh, what's that? Financial independence and retiring early or the fire kind of mentality. Difficulties of being a Christian when the world around us sees Christians as just weird. We're going to look at that and then suddenly Easter will be upon us, amazingly. I can't believe how fast this year is already going. Um, And then we'll get back into John. And as he mentioned, I get to kick us off with this new series and we're going to look at how culture, how culture impacts or makes faith challenging. Um, We're going to do that through the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And thank you again, Elena, uh, for reading that, even though you were misnamed. Um, you know, as I started preparing to today's message, one of the things I did is I reached out to Pastor Clint, uh, and I asked him to provide a bit more information, a bit of context about where he was wanting to go with this particular sermon series, and, and specifically this passage as well. So, because as was read, you can see that there's a lot of things that we could focus on from this story with the Samaritan woman. And I really didn't want to mess with his vibe. And so I wanted to understand where was he wanting to go. And he explained to me that when he pulled together the plan for this series in the beginning, the difficulty in Christianity that he was hoping today's passage could focus on was the cultural cost of Christianity. So I thought, cool, that's not a problem. So what I want to do is I want to start by bringing us all on the same page and defining what I'm talking about when it comes to culture. Okay. So now, most scholars, I was looking at this up, most scholars would define culture as a way of life for a group, a people group or something. It's, it's typically a shared agreement of different things like language or art or beliefs, dress, values, or, or religion, and, which is a great book definition, but I want to go deeper, right? Because culture, I think, is also an essential component of who we are. As individuals, right? Culture, it shapes our perspectives, it shapes our opinions, it shapes our behaviors. And I'll tell you, oftentimes, if you consider culture, the cultural expectations, they're so innate, so ingrained in who we are as individuals that we don't even realize when they come out. We don't recognize them. And as I was studying and preparing for this, you know, based on this understanding and this definition, I think I can call Church of the Beloved a multicultural church. I know if you were actually to look next door to your neighbors, you would probably think, no. But um, we've got Zoomers to a boomer. I'm not a boomer. I'm just kidding. We've got Zoomers to to millennials to Gen Xers, and we even have today Gen Alphas, right? We've got Chinese. We've got Brazilians. We've got Mexicans. We've got hyphenated Americans. We've got so many different cultures, each with their different expectations, different languages. I think we could consider ourselves at least kind of multicultural, right? The next logical lead that I want to talk about with regards to culture before we get into this deeper is 
a person typically can belong to more than one culture. For example, I am a Gen X Korean American carnivore, not even an omnivore, just straight up <laughs> bloody meat. Um, but I also ascribe to something often called Christian or kingdom culture. At least I try to. Now here's the thing to understand about kingdom culture or Christian culture. It often requires us to go against every other cultural group you might belong to. Because, see, there's a cost. There's a cost to faith. There's a cost to kingdom culture that makes, for a lot of people, Christianity kind of difficult. And we're going to look at the examples of that cost in today's stories. But one last thing before we get into it. One last time, I was listening to a podcast, and there was an author on this podcast. Her name is Jen Michael. And she was talking about, and she was defining how culture oftentimes is our attempt to be God. Let me explain. See, cultural norms and cultural expectations, they try to create order out of chaos, right? And we have these humanistic cultural bumpers to help provide a sense of calm, of control over the environment that we're in. Let me give you a couple examples. In Chinese culture, as I understand it, you should never add salt to your mother's cooking because that impacts her happiness. That controls her happiness. In Korean culture, you're never supposed to drink in front of your elders. You're supposed to go to the side because that's supposed to control your sobriety. It doesn't work. In Gen X culture, you're never supposed to be without a pencil. And the reason for that is because you have to always be able to rewind your cassette tape. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. Culture is intended to control the chaos around you. And it does that by defining and setting expectations. See, culture kind of lets us play God in the world around us. I'll tell you, the very first job I ever had, um, and you, some of you might relate to this, it was McDonald's. I was 14 years old. And for some unknown reason, my manager thought, yeah, a 14-year-old kid is great to work closing. So I worked the 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift uh, at the register. Now, in the 80s, I don't know if it's still the same, but in the 80s, you would meet some very unique people at a McDonald's at 11 o'clock at night on a weekday. Just weird people. I, anyway, after two weeks of doing that, I came home with my first ever paycheck. And I was so proud of that paycheck. I don't know about you and your first paycheck, but mine was a literal piece of paper that I had to sign in the back. I had to open a bank account and deposit it in. I considered framing it, but I really wanted the money, so I couldn't. It was only a few bucks, but still, it was, I was very proud of that. The thing is, as soon as I got home, my mom put her hand out and said, give me your check. And I looked at her like she had lost her friggin' mind. I said, what, what do you mean, give you my money? I worked hard for, I'm the one that has to deal with the acne that I've gotten because of all the grease I have to deal with. I'm the one that had to put in the hours being nice to crazy people. Why would I give you my paycheck, my first ever paycheck? It made no sense to me, so I just took the paycheck and I left. It took years, and I finally learned, thanks to uh, another friend of mine, that my mom wasn't trying to steal my money. She wasn't actually trying to be abusive. It turned out that my mom had this cultural expectation. She's a Korean immigrant, right? She had a cultural expectation that I had no clue about. See, in Korean culture, it turns out, as I understand it, that the first paycheck or your first fruits as an adult go to the parents to thank them for raising you. I didn't know this. 
Because my American culture told me, hey, I did the work, I keep the money, right? And in Korean culture, if you understand it, there is no concept of self. There is no me. There is only we, or in Korean, uri. There's only family versus American culture, where it's all about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, working to advance yourself, making the money. See, my culture was being used by me to control the chaos around me. My culture let me, lets me believe that I can be like God. And, and, and the culture I understood, the culture that I had that informed my expectations and my character, it clashed with the culture that my mom lived in. And when the two collided, and when the two conflicted, I was absolutely unable and I was absolutely unwilling to forego my culture or hers. I was not going to give up control. Now, here's a point that I really want to focus on for today's passage. It's this. As Christians, we're called to cling to a culture that's even more different than the one I just described. We're called to cling and ascribe to a kingdom, an upside-down kingdom culture. And this kingdom culture, it requires us to let go, to relinquish control to someone else. See, your culture is about you. Kingdom culture is about the king. So what I want to do for the rest of the time is actually let's look at those differences between human or your culture and kingdom culture. And the first difference I want to point to is in verse 4. Verse 4 simply starts off by saying, he had to travel through Samaria. Now you might not know this, but back in the day, Jews hated Samaritans. There was so much animosity between the two ethnic groups on that, that the road from Judea to Galilee was intentionally a more roundabout route. It followed the Jordan River. It would take the traveler around Samaria when they could have gone through, but it would take them around it because even though it took more time, it was better to take that time than to almost accidentally run into a Samaritan. They just didn't want that to happen. So when this scripture says Jesus didn't have to travel through Samaria to get to where he was going, It wasn't because there was no other way. Jesus had to travel through Samaria because that's where God was leading him. That was the plan. Because kingdom culture sometimes requires us to run to trouble, not run from it. My wife, Suzette, and I, we're involved with uh, an organization, Hands at Work in Africa. It's a faith-based nonprofit uh, that Church of the Beloved partners with. Uh, They care for the widows and orphans in sub-Saharan Africa. We specifically partner with an organization, a uh, community-based organization in Zambia. Now, one of the values for HANDS is exactly what I described. They run to trouble, not from it. Last two weeks ago, we we prayed for a situation in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. There, the warlords are kidnapping children and either putting them in as uh, making them child soldiers or selling them into slavery, sex slavery. It's actually been getting worse, and so if you could remember them in your prayers. I'll tell you, the easiest thing that we could do, that hands could do, is just to be run, run from the problem, right? But kingdom culture, our response in kingdom culture is instead to run to the vulnerable, to run to them and fight for them, to call upon the Father who knows every single one of those orphans by name, and to say to each single one of them, The Father loves you. We love you. We care for you. We are going to protect you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
verse 12. I'm going to just read the second half of verse 7 and read to verse 10. This is what it says there. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's so much easier, so much more logical for one to pray, hey, God, please take away the issues that I'm having, these trials. That I'm having. Work is hard. Take away my job. Just make me rich. I feel fat. Make me skinny. God, I feel lonely. Give me a cat. What? But these are not bad things to pray for, by the way. It's fine. This might be God's plan to give you a cat, but I will never visit you if you do. But here's the thing. As Paul realized, I'm asking you to realize the prayer that we are called to, to pray, to cling to, is not God. Take away these problems. The prayer that we are called to pray, the prayer that we are called to cling to is this. God, perfect your power in my weakness. Because kingdom culture calls me to lean into the uncomfortable and to trust God to bring me through it. Psalm chapter 23, verse 4. Most of you know this 23rd Psalm. It says this, even when I go through the darkest valley, or some of you might know the valley of shadow of death, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yes. Jesus, Jesus had to go through the darkest valley. Jesus had to go. Through Samaria. Jesus had to do this. Jesus had to do this because he understood that it is God who comforts him. Jesus had to do this because he understood it is God who is sufficient for him. The cost of kingdom culture is that sometimes we have to lean into the chaos. Sometimes we have to stop, well, all the time, stop trying to control it yourself. The cost is that we have to trust that God is in control always and forever already. Because Jesus saw it. There are souls that need to hear his truth. There are souls that need to see his truth, the truth of the gospel. Just, Jesus didn't run from trouble. He ran into it so that the Messiah could come to the lost. That's the first difference between a kingdom culture and a human culture. The second difference that I want to point out between human and kingdom culture is this. Our culture, human culture, expects us to cling to traditions. The kingdom culture requires us to cling to Christ. I want to read from uh, chapter 19 to verse 24. It says there this, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. I, I, I don't know if this, if you all know, um, Will, he's helping out in the back with our AV. For some reason, when I hear this woman speaking, saying, I see that you're a prophet, it's a very, almost to me, sarcastic, so I hear Will's voice in my head for some reason. Um, 
I see that you are a prophet. Um, anyway, moving on. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews say that we need to, uh, that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. See, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming. It's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes. The Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, right before this passage, right before this uh, piece, Jesus pointed out that, you know what? When he asked her about her husband, she spoke honestly when she said she wasn't married because it turns out she's already been married five times and now the dude she was living with wasn't her husband, right? And after he says that, you know, I, I, I understand she had to feel kind of uncomfortable with that. I mean, it, she was fully exposed. Uh, all her baggage was being put out there. And so, so, of course, she quickly changes the subject and says, hey, Jesus, by the way, uh, Samaritans have always worshipped on this mountain, but your Jews say that we have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. Is that really right? Is that truly kosher? Does, does it have to be that way? I'll tell you, I want to take a moment, it's just a little diversion here, um, to talk about the divorce part. Because um, I'll tell you, growing up, I'm ashamed to say, that I think I was reading the part about the woman's multiple divorces, and I thought that it was her fault. Verse 18 says, For you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. Now, I, th I, I will say, I've been, I think, reading it wrong my whole life. And I'm sorry to say that for the longest time, I was basically blaming the victim in that passage. Because if you think about it, in ancient Jewish tradition, the woman really didn't have much power, right? So the letter of divorce, it usually came because of the man's decision. So as I was preparing for this, I suddenly realized, I think I need to read Jesus' sentence a little differently. And I think, I, I think that he's saying, listen, I know you're not married now. I know that you've had men abandon you over and over again. I know that you've had men who made a covenant to love you, who made a covenant to care for you, who made a covenant to die for you. I know that you've been deserted over and over again. And I know that you're trying to do the right thing. I know you're trying to do what you can to survive. And I know. I know that society, I know that your culture requires you to have a man help you. So you have to live with one now that won't marry you. I know that you come to this well in the middle of the noon sun when no one else is here because you are a cultural pariah. I know the trauma you faced. I know the trauma you're facing. I know you. I think that's how you have to read that one sentence. I'll tell you, it's uncomfortable, extremely. 
So the Samaritan woman, understandably, changes the subject. She goes from the personal, where he's diving deep, and says, oh, let's talk about religion instead. Because she didn't want to deal with the relational stuff. She said, oh, you know what? It's going to be so much easier. Let's talk about theological things or theoretical things, right? But Jesus won't let it go. And he turns it around again. And he reframes her question. He says, you know what? It's not about where you worship. It's about who you worship and how you worship. Because it's never been about tradition. It's always been about Christ. You know, when you look at the original Greek of this passage, the woman says, our ancestors worshiped here. And ancestors, if you look at it, is patri, which is the same root as the word father, when Jesus says, you will worship the father. So Jesus saw with the words that she was choosing that she was trying to focus on tradition. She was trying to focus on history. And Jesus uses a similar word to make her change the focus. I'm telling you, Jesus sees us and does that we are often doing the same thing. Because how often do you follow certain traditions, certain habits and things just because that's what your ancestors had always done? How often do you follow cultural habits or mores because that's what your parents did? How often is it just what we've always done? I'll tell you that in our lifetime, there have been a few pivotal events, I think, in Western history that have opened the eyes of so many, including myself. And I think it's been a positive thing. Hopefully some of you all are familiar with the Me Too movement. When the Me Too movement happened, my wife shared about her Me Too moment as well. I think it's one of the bravest things she's ever done. Besides marrying me, because <laughs> that was stupid brave. Um, but I'll tell you, the Me Too moment opened up my eyes to the reality of the patriarchy's pervasiveness in every aspect of our culture, and it happened, and thankfully, culture blew up. When the BLM movement happened, among the many things that it did, it opened, for me at least, my eyes to the microaggressions that were happening, to how tradition-driven practices that were wholly unbiblical and wholly unchristian were there, and thank God, culture blew up, or as hope it is. Jesus is trying to do the same thing. He's trying to open up this woman's eyes to a truth, a truth that kingdom culture is not supposed to be based on tradition. It is supposed to be based on the Messiah. It's supposed to be based on the Christ. Jesus says, you will worship the Father. He wants, says it that way because he wants her to understand it's not about her earthly fathers. It's not about her ancestors. It's not about her traditions. It's about God. It's always been about God. It's always supposed to have been about her father in heaven because she is called to be a beloved child of God. I'll tell you, you look at this woman and you realize for her entire life, culture had dictated how she was supposed to live. For her entire life, culture had dictated who she lived with, 
for her entire life. Culture dictated where she worshiped. But now, now she's being called to a kingdom culture that's telling her right now the hour has come. Kingdom culture tells her, kingdom culture tells us that it's not about tradition. It's not about what we're comfortable with. It's not about our culture. It's about Christ. It's not about where you worship. It's about who you worship. Kingdom culture tells us that the cost of a relationship with our Father in heaven is to let go. It's to let go of the culture that we're comfortable with. It's to let go of the culture that we've always known. It's to let go of the culture that we've always leaned on to forget the religion and find the relationship. I'll tell you that clinging to a kingdom culture, it is expensive. Because kingdom culture calls you and tells you to go against your human culture, what you're comfortable with. It requires you to stop trying to be God and stop trying to use your own culture to control the chaos around you. Kingdom culture sometimes calls you to run to trouble, not run from it. Kingdom culture tells you to not cling to tradition. It says cling to the Father, cling to the Christ. The last thing I want to mention, the last difference is this, kingdom culture will never conform to who I am or to me ever. And thank God for that. You know, one of the things that uh, my wife Suzanne and I do when we go to Zambia uh, and we're visiting a family with uh, young orphan children or grandparents is we offer to go to the well to get some water for them. Hauling water for an elderly grandparent or, or child, it can be taxing, though honestly, over the years, we've realized a lot of those grandmas are a lot stronger than me, so they can, and they can do this thing where they can balance a bucket on their head, which I can't do, but every time we go, we always have to bring some sort of container with us, right, because we have to pour the water into the container and bring it back with us. Even if you want a simple drink from the well, when you bring out the well bucket, you need to have a ladle, just because it's a communal well, and you want to honor those who you're sharing it with. And in this story, when Jesus offers the Samaritan woman living water, I love her response. Her response is this, you didn't even bring a bucket. You know, you, how are you going to offer me anything when you don't have the tools yourself to get water? What? What? The thing about the living water that Jesus is offering the Samaritan woman is this. It doesn't follow us. See, the Samaritan, she came with her own expectations. She came with her own limitations. She wanted some of that living water, but she wanted it with her own constructs. She wanted it with her own cultural expectations. She wanted it in her bucket that she had brought along. But then something else happens. In verse 28 and 29, look what happens. It says, then the woman left her water jar. Went into town, told the people, come, see, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This is the image I hope you can leave with today. See, we're coming to the cross of Christ. We are coming to Christ, and he's offering us a brand new kingdom culture. He's offering us a new redeemed life that is no longer bound by traditions that we've grown up with and have, have helped control our chaos. He's flipping the script on everything that we could possibly understand, and he's promising a relationship with the Father in heaven in whose image we have all been created. But the question I have, and the image I need you to have in your head is this, are you trying to make that life, that water, fit in your 
water jug? Are you trying to compartmentalize kingdom culture to fit in your Asian American uh, uh, Gen X culture? Are you trying to make God fit within the confines of your expectations? Are you saying things like, God, I want your grace, but I still need to make my millions. God, I want your love, but I still want to be the star of the show. God, I want your mercy, but I still need to have all the control. See, the thing is, the call to be a Christian is, is really easy, but at the same time, it's really, really hard. Because it's easy because Jesus has done all the work for you already. But it's hard because Jesus has done all the work for you already. The cost of redemption is so simple. It is just simply believe. But the cost of belief is to let go of our human culture where we have all the control over the chaos and lean into Christ's kingdom culture where God has all the control over the chaos. And for a lot of people, that feels costly. I'll tell you that the the Samaritan woman, she was provided a chance to, to make a choice. And she was provided a chance to make a choice because Jesus Christ fully embodies kingdom culture in his very being. Because he ran to the problem. He didn't run from it. The woman at the well, she faced the cost of kingdom culture. And that cost, she needed to let go of her traditions and needed to be willing to cling to Christ. We all here now have a choice to also live out kingdom culture with this woman by understanding this, this new culture does not and will never conform to me. I am called to conform to it. I need to leave my bucket of presuppositions, of tradition, of culture, of assumption. I need to leave all of that behind and proclaim, I have found the Messiah. Because here's the thing. Your culture, our culture, it's about us. And it leads us nowhere. Kingdom culture is about the king. And it leads us home. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.